We're back! We're back! It's a distraction! I'm Drew! That's Roth! How you doing? Roth? I'm good, man. How are you? I am fit as a fiddle, feeling good and living large. Wow, yeah, I was gonna say, you look like you're living large right now. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if the kids say living large anymore. They, they certainly probably, do not. They don't? Well, that's not fair. It's, everything's just, they love to say, bu- everything's bussin' now with the kids. Everything's bussin'. I don't get that. I, you know what? I, I tweeted it, or X'd it, or whatever the fuck it is now, and I said that my, my daughter said something was bust, and that meant it was good, and I was like, I've never felt so fucking out of it than not knowing that, and then everyone on Twitter was like, no, nobody says that. They say busted or, or B-U-S-S-E-D or something like that. And I was like, oh, wait, you mean that in this day and age, there is actual regional variation that still exists on slang? Wow. It's exciting. Who? We have an actual young person on the podcast that could explain uh, some slang. Emma, yeah, Emma, we do. What's, what's cool? We have, to, we have to preview the World Series, and here we have the most bust baseball reporter in the world. No, but it, it, that's only true if it's a good thing. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean it in a, a good way. It's Emma Bachelieri of Sports Illustrated. Hi, Emma. Hey. Hi. I am sorry to tell you guys, I'm 28, which doesn't really count as young for slang parsing. Lady, do you have oh, yeah. any idea how old we are? Yeah. I'm dude. just saying, <laughs> the generational divide, it feels like it's gotten, there's like a gulf between me and anyone who is like, legitimately Gen Z. This is yep. already, like, you're testing my limits here. Okay, okay. But I'm 47, so when you're like, oh, I'm 28, I'm so old, you know I'm going to be like, oh, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I will <laughs> say that one thing that, that makes me feel, I mean, obviously, like, I'm not uh, holding on to my youth with both hands. I'm aware that I don't really have any say in that matter. Uh, talking to my nephew, who's like 11, periodically he will say stuff, and I'm like, I don't, I don't need to know what that is. Like, I don't even want to, like, whatever it is that that level of like slang or like all of you guys like getting mad at each other for stuff that happens on, uh, you know, like Roblox or in breath of the wild or whatever. Like that's your business. I don't need to have anything to do with that. Like, just let me, I'm almost done dying. Just let me handle my, myself over here. You, you've only begun dying, Roth. I just oh, wanted yes. you to feel better about that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Emma, we should talk about, the World Series. Now, in the interest of full transparency, uh, as is typical, we are recording this a few days uh, prior to the World Series, which means that we don't know who has won Game 7 between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. Uh, So we are going to preview the World Series with the contingency that uh, we are going to talk about the Phillies and the Diamondbacks going against the Texas Rangers, who beat the ever-loving shit out of the Astros in Game 7 a night ago. And uh, and so now we have to preview the World Series between those two teams. Emma, are you ready to debrief us on these fabulous three, soon-to-be-two teams? Sure. Let's go. I, I, always looking for opportunities to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks. I've had surprisingly few of them in my life. So. Yeah, it's, everybody <laughs> loves to think about them and talk about them. Myself, obviously, included. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about, actually, let's talk about the the one team we know won't be in there. It's the Astros. They were mercifully crushed in Game 7 by the Rangers, but they didn't go out without banging the trash can lid of grievance yet again, <laughs> to put it in Eric Adams's. Why do the Astros <laughs> complain so much, Emma? What is their major malfunction? It's a really weird thing where I think, you know, at this point, we are obviously like years removed from both the scandal itself and then the unveiling of the scandal and the idea of, you know, 
punishment not being really sufficient and fans having to make up for that in their own ways, like it feels like we should be far enough removed from it that it should theoretically be possible to just go forth. Uh, and yet it just feels like Astros fans, in some ways the Astros from an organizational standpoint, just make that very hard for people to move on from because everything seems to get shifted into this, yeah, it's viewed through this lens of grievance and of everyone being against them, the league being against them in a way that is just like, I think, very maddening for other people outside to see. And so it makes everyone love to root against them, which is great. It's good to have a heel. It's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it feels like at this point it will just never die. For yeah. a uh, for background, there's a few things. One is that there's only three players on the Astros remaining from that cheating scandal. Alex Cora, who was the manager at the time, has cycled through, I think, 15 different jobs since then. He's just had this, he's gotten the same job a couple of different times. Is more In, the, in the Rangers series, uh, kick-ass batter uh, Adolis Garcia uh, hit a home run, and instead of flipping the bat, he spiked the bat on the way to first base and then did a ceremonial stomp onto home plate and almost like gave gave home plate a little bit of the business like oh yeah you like that home plate and well the rate the uh the Astros did not like that one bit so uh the next time Garcia came up uh reliever Brian Abreu plunked the shit out of Garcia and then there was the whole like oh hold me back kind of thing and Garcia got ejected uh Dusty Baker got ejected and Abreu got ejected and the Astros were not happy that Abreu was eventually suspended uh, out of that. Did the Astros have a legit grievance, Emma, about what happened to Abreu, or are they just being pissy little diaper babies about it? I do accept the idea that like intentionality is impossible to prove, and that like the umpires can't know like the innermost sanctum of Brian Abreu's heart. Um, <laughs> but like. I think that just is, it sucks, but it's one of the things you have to go with. If you plunk a guy in a heated moment, even if there wasn't, even if you just wanted a, a brush back pitch and the intent wasn't actually to hit him, like the league has set the standard that there should be consequences for that. If you do that, there are going to be consequences. And it, I thought it was the wrong call to, they ended up upholding the suspension for two games, but delaying it to next year, which is like, Okay, Brian. Who gives a shit, right? right? Can't play on March 31st. Gets two days off in March. Yeah, you just two games against the Angels that will not matter at all. Right, which especially because traditionally the uh, punishment you'll see for a reliever in that situation is about five games. So you could tell that they had taken into account when they made the suspension the, the idea that two postseason games, including a you know a clinching game, or equivalent to five regular season games. That's, I mean, that's kind of impossible calculus, but you could see that like they tried to account for that in the original punishment. And it's just one of those things to me that like it would make sense to then, okay, they, they made the call in the original statement that they released that said, you know, all six umpires on that crew had determined that it was intentional, that, you know, he deserved to be ejected. And so the corresponding punishment was going to be two postseason games. Suspended. It's like, yes, that's impossible to technically prove, but it made sense given the the context. Um, yes, it was incredibly stupid to throw at a guy in a, what was still a, a close game in game six of the or game five of the ALCS. But like, guys do stupid things all the time, and I count on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's basically the theme of our podcast. It is weird that this like sort of goes to the 
the bit about like what the Astros deal is too, because like I don't believe that it was intentional. It just wouldn't have made good baseball sense to hit the right. guy then. To me, like the issue with the Astros is that they never picked a meaningful lane for uh, Michael Bauman did a little thread on this the other night uh, of fan graphs where they basically like never embraced the role of villain in a way that was that made any sort of sense. And I'm not saying that like they're, you know, they're a baseball team. They're not like a WWE guy where there is somebody writing a script for them. But in this case, you can't get mad at the existence of consequences and then complain about how consequences themselves are like inherently skewed against you. You have to accept that you are an active participant in all of this. And I think the Astros have, this is the bit that's like managed to keep them annoying, even as you said, I mean, this is, it's been seven years they've been this good. The whole roster is turned over, you know, like Josh Reddick isn't walking through that door. There's nothing to like get upset about vis-a-vis the banging on the trash can team anymore, except for the fact that they're still somehow acting as if they were the ones that were wronged in that whole deal. And this kind of feels like an extension of that, not because it is, because I don't think it is, but because they have been having the same tantrum for like half a decade. Yeah, I I think that's a really good way of putting it. And I think it is this weird thing where I'm sure on a personal level, it has to feel really annoying to, you know, step into this uniform and then like suddenly like you have an entire it's not just one fandom, it's the fandom of 29 other teams yes. and any neutral observers. And All the people the who don't even you're really... better than. Right. right, exactly. And like casual fans who don't even really watch baseball, but uh, like feel that they are supposed to hate you. Mm-hmm. For something that y- you didn't do, the guys you came up with and the minors didn't do, like that has to be really annoying, but also that's sports. And it is weird how on like an organizational level, it seems to kind of just pervade everything from their response to things like this to, you know, the way they handle media in some respects. It's just like this weird thing where it's like, I do get on a personal level that has to be really weird and annoying. And the idea of like, you have to carry all of this baggage that you were not personally responsible for, but that's also kind of just how team sports work. And I do feel like as an organization, if you either like really leaned into being a heel you you could make it work in a more navigable way or just try to like completely step out of it. it could have faded more quickly, but instead it's this weird middle path where, like you said, it's like continually, seemingly any grievance that comes up is viewed through this lens of like persecution and it just ends up weird and makes people hate them Yeah, more. it winds up in some very funny places as any like grievance sustained for a long time by boys tends to wind up in really funny places that... The quotes that were given anonymously, of course, complaining how everyone's against you on background to Ken Rosenthal about the discipline. There's a story in The Athletic that ran earlier this week where somebody, to Ken Rosenthal, to like a real guy, they either said it to his face or they texted it to him. We're like, did you know that Chris Young actually worked for the MLB's Office of Discipline between the uh, 2018 and 2020? That doesn't seem... Uh, convenient to you that he would then become the ah. GM of the team that is defeating us and then our guy would get to and it was the sort of thing where I always wondered about this when I used to work I used to volunteer with a lot of like conspiracy minded people and they were otherwise really pleasant to talk to you could talk to them about vegetables this was like a CSA you know so I'd like they had recipes for you know like they could braise a carrot but they could not hear themselves when they started talking about like causality or things the government does and I wanted to to sort of be like, you gotta, like, hold on, just rewind the tape in your head. Like, it, what you're saying, does that not sound like a thing that a crazy person would say to you? 
And the Astros as an organization seem not to have the uh, the rewind button just does not work. I just want some flair from them. If you're going to be a shitbag, do it Deion Sanders style. Have a bit of charisma, have a bit of flair. Shit, do otherwise, it Adolis Garcia style. Like, yeah, just, otherwise, yeah, he was, that spike was fucking great. He was like, fuck you, bat. <laughs> it was, I loved it. And that, like, otherwise you sound like every asshole I see, like, retweeted, like, ironically, like, every hour of every day. Like, it's all the same voice, and it's all boring as shit by now. Yeah. Like, like, how many times do I need to hear, like, someone like piss and moan about wokeness before like that like that sh- that routine that shtick is like that is so far Ugh. beyond played out like moldy you can't even like smelly you can't even like make a straight face when you say it yourself anymore so yep. it's like I, can I ask an Adolis Garcia question of Emma and then we can get back on track with this because I, I was think I got asked a question about him on the radio this morning uh, in Las Vegas by my friends that I go on the radio with they asked if a more obscure guy has ever gone this level of supernova in a postseason that you can think of. And I don't think I can think of anyone. I think you have a case between him and Randy Arozarena, which I'm sure yeah, is recency yeah. bias, but it's about similar levels. I, I actually think I would take Randy over Garcia because Garcia has been an all-star. Right. He was like extremely and off the radar. had like barely been in the majors by that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is pretty close it is really fun yeah i mean okay so garcia is a two-time all-star at this point he did finish fourth in rookie of the year voting which is of course like his journey to get to rookie of the year was crazy where you know the cardinals gave him away for nothing the rangers themselves had dfa'd him and thought there wasn't anything there like so that they could have mike fultonevich in their rotation exactly. that was like two Priorities. years ago <laughs> no it was it was exactly two years ago um like, it's crazy. I still think I would take a Rosarino who truly felt out of nowhere and also was someone given up by the Cardinals for uh, something that didn't work out. So fun little trend there. But yeah, it's it's close. And I mean, honestly, heading into this series, I think you could also have made a case for uh, Evan Carter, who has had a much less flashy and less fun ALCS, but still very productive um, Garcia's teammate on the Rangers and actually the teammate who was promoted to take his place in the outfield when Garcia got hurt in September um, who has was only made his major league debut like mid-September uh, has had you know this crazy run of just like consistency like insane play discipline ability to get on base um, lots of like little things right the kind of that sort of boring uh model of success but he also was someone who was like not on radars at all like you know when the rangers drafted him in 2020 there was this whole thing where no one on the mlb network draft broadcast knew who he was and like oh wow yeah it's actually it was not to delve into the whole life story of evan carter i know you've Um, written about him was he he drafted during a taco bell ad not quite and we don't (laughs) have like a picture of him yeah Yeah. of like as as a chubby youngster like that will get circulated forever so unfortunately just like yeah like like the tom brady combine photo like oh he's got dad body he was he was fat ah this is actually maybe as good as a taco bell ad his part of the reason he was off radars is like he's from small town Tennessee, like super small town, middle of nowhere. The last minor leaguer to come from his county was in 1974. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So like truly no one on this, on his radar. And he had committed really early to Duke 
Um, oh, good. Because I was hoping we'd get one of these. Oh, we should know the demos. Unless a dookie, we should disclose that to people. Yeah, gotta put the bias up front. Um, but he committed to Duke because his dream was to be a dentist. And get he the just, fuck out yes, of here. Yes, he was very open about it. Um, specifically, a, a periodontist that does like root canals. That was his dream, and he <laughs> had said so. Like, and he was like a good high school player. Obviously, he you know was had his pick of schools, but his whole thing was like he didn't do any of the like travel ball showcases because it's like that takes money and time and if you know you want to go to duke and become a dentist who's going to do root canals he did spend some time in the summer each year shadowing dentists with the time he saved i was gonna make a joke about he was like he was on the dental camp circuit he had to go you know do all that. that's amazing he literally was hermy he shadowed dentists um spent all i mean not all his time doing this he was like a legitimately good player and sometimes i think it gets like to package into a neat story but it was like everyone was like well he seems so committed to college and he's not doing any travel ball why would any team scout him uh and the rangers had like you know through this kind of like weird old school thing where it was like someone on their staff knew a guy who knew evan carter's dad who was like you have to come out here to the middle of nowhere tennessee to watch this kid and they ended up really liking him and talking to him and decided that they were going to be willing to take him really high and they took him in the second round in 2020, at a time when, like, I mean, Baseball America does a top 500, which covers rounds and rounds and rounds. He wasn't in the top 500. He was that far off the radar for, you know, draftees because he was going to go be a dentist. And so they took him in 2020. He obviously is not a dentist, didn't go to Duke, uh, but then was called up this year and now has, like, the longest postseason on base streak of someone this young ever. And, uh, yeah. yeah. This is the other thing. The elf of baseball unbelievable yeah. a dentist that's great <laughs> so what's amazing about the rangers too they were bad enough recently enough that i mean carter qualifies i guess i didn't realize that he was quite that far off the radar they have like one of the best prospects in the minors basically ready to join the roster next year and that's like a guy they drafted but two years ago whenever wyatt langford like yeah they're in a great spot to like really be good in a way that, like, I don't think it would have been easy to... I mean, they lost 100 and... What is 102 games in 2021, too. There's two teams that lost more than 100 games that could be in the World Series. Two of the three that remain as we record this. It is really funny that the... You know, I feel like we've gotten so used to, as fans, seeing this idea that the only way to pull out of those extended stretches of mediocrity that turns into then outright terribleness is that you have to do, like, the slow, methodical rebuild. And it's yeah. like, in some ways, the Rangers did do that and invested in player development and made some very smart, savvy draft picks, but they just kind of speed ran it out of it by saying like, okay, and now we're also going to spend like half a billion dollars on our infield and get some top line starting pitching and just sure. Like we've put in the work on getting the high draft picks and now we're just going to put all the money in the world into making this fun right now. Yep. Nice to see Uh, one baseball team commit to that. Like I was cheering, I was cheering for them against the Astros, but I thought I was like, well, why am I doing that? Cause it's, you know, they're not unlike the Braves where I'm I'm going to be cheering for yet another National League team that built a completely unnecessary stadium five years after they had just built, like, another new one. And, yep. and now they, like, do I like Texas Rangers fans? I don't I don't think of Texas Rangers fans as being, like, tortured or anything. But you got to look into their ownership. There are some real 
princes. In that yeah, match. that's the other thing. It's not like it's not like they're owned by fucking Mother Teresa or anything like that. I'm like, oh, this this, this is the moral team. This is definitely yeah. these are definitely the good guys. Great moment after they won. Uh, where the you know, obviously this is like it happens often enough that I shouldn't be jarred by it. But the moment you know a triumphant team is all these guys jumping around, bopping each other on the head. Although the Rangers were pretty sedate as teams that are going to the World Series go. And then the trophy is just handed to like the version of the crypt keeper that works in the petroleum industry. And he's like, this is for the fans. And it's like <laughs> such an incredibly unpleasant and jarring moment. Yeah. It wasn't even George W. Bush. They found an owner that is as visually uh, unsettling to me as George W. Bush is. Uh, are they good enough to win the World Series, Emma? I think so. I mean, I certainly didn't have them at the beginning of the playoffs on my uh, list of real potential contenders there. But at this point, you know, I think their pitching is still a question mark, especially the bullpen. And, you know, if you if you don't have a healthy Max Scherzer or a Max Scherzer at full strength, that also kind of complicates things a little bit. But, you know, this lineup is just so good. And especially, you know, the the Phillies and the Diamondbacks have both shown they have, you know, their own weak spots. So, like, I really think after this ALCS that the Rangers can do it and could even win, like, pretty decisively, um, which, you know, isn't a given, of course. I That bullpen really does scare me. Uh, yeah. But it, I, I think they really could. Uh, can we talk about Scherzer for a moment? I want to talk about Max Scherzer because he, you know, obviously he's... The, I, I would say he's the most famous ranger right now, or is it only to me that he's the I most mean, no, it's ranger? him or Jacob deGrom. So he's the probably the most famous healthy ranger. Uh, and he has struggled in the postseason. Would that be correct to say? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's highs and lows. Okay, why has he struggled? Can he unstruggle in the World Series? I mean, at this point, what we saw from him this series was, you know, he hadn't pitched in like a month, had been dealing with... He, had a very rocky year in general, I think I would say. Um, just a combination of health issues. I think he's you could just say could... Mets related issues. <laughs> I was trying I, to I be should polite. say, I Thank should you. say that his, <laughs> his ERA this postseason has been 9.45, so that's not good. That's now bad. I don't follow baseball. Is that bad? Yeah, I, I don't follow baseball, but I do know that's bad. So. Correct. Yeah, he uh, had a rocky year hadn't been able to pitch in like a month coming into the postseason. He wasn't on the roster for the the wild card series or the divisional series. I think he has shown like flashes of himself and his ability in the two starts he's made in this CS. But I think you maybe at this point have to consider like, what about just using him as a bullpen weapon? Like yeah. would he be more effective just, you know, two innings at a time? I think that maybe is the smartest move here. I'm not sure we'll see them do that. Uh, you know, maybe. I was going to say, would they Would they do that? Would they pull that trigger? I mean, I, we've seen him work out of the bullpen in like do or die postseason situations before for the Nats, for the Dodgers. I think that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, That's different though. That's like a game. That's like an elimination game sort of thing. This is right. different if he's like game one, if he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you be our setup man. I could see Max Scherzer being the type of pitcher who would like stab his manager with an all if they did that. Good use of all, first of all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Not many crossword uh, words used <laughs> in these. You could have said stabbed him with an epe. I am. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I am all about the good vocabulary. Calm down. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very Emma, much. keep talking. He's just going to go if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think from what we've seen of him, like, yes, like traditional Max Scherzer, yes, 
absolutely would do anything to stay in the biggest game at the biggest moment. He's a stabbing risk, just as a guy. He's a <laughs> yeah, stabbing risk. Generally. <laughs> but I mean, he's 39. I think he understands if his role has to shift. He, in general, has tended to be good at making adjustments, although we've seen the limitations of that pop up recently. You know, I think at this point, he's seen what the CS was like for him. And if they want him in a more limited capacity, whether it's, you know, making a start with the understanding it's only going to be for two innings and it's actually a bullpen game if it's just working out of the bullpen as a weapon like a stabbing risk but a lesser stabbing risk than i think uh, we might have yeah. seen in the past and he wants to win a world series really bad right. i mean he's like a maniac but i i feel like he's as he's within that like acceptable band of being a maniac that uh certain types of baseball players are. I admire him. I'm, a lot of Mets fans are really salty about him for reasons that I don't fully understand. I just, I recognize this version of him as the version that pitched for the Mets early in the season when he wasn't fully healthy from, I, I don't know, bleak injury. And that sort of like electric but bad version of Max Scherzer, I think if you got smaller doses of it, you'd get a better result. I hope not, they do it. Not sure Mets fans need a rationale. No, right. Yeah, we got all- Enough other problems. It's better to have it be directed at like an actual famous guy as opposed to just like having a vendetta against one dude from the bagel place, which is also a very Mets fan. Uh, let's take a break. We'll talk about the National League side of the World Series when we come back. Before we take a break, though, I just want to note this week's episode is brought to you by Shaquille O'Neal's Pumpkin Spice Deodorant. Everything <laughs> else is pumpkin spice flavored in October. Why not you? That's new pumpkin spice deodorant from Shaquille O'Neal, available only at Foot Locker. We'll be right back with Emma Bachelieri. Was that a real ad read? The Distraction is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever feel like your brain is getting in its own way? Like you know what you should do, what's good for you, but you just can't do it? Therapy can help you figure out what's holding you back from doing the things you know are good for you. So you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. Therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. I've been in therapy for many, many years. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know that it has worked for me to some extent, but not entirely. But the opportunity to sort of hear yourself, hear what you're thinking out loud, and then be able to process that has been incredibly clarifying and helpful in my life. And that's the sort of experience that BetterHelp is offering. Therapy isn't just a place to talk through what's keeping you up at night. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself, to improve your own life and how you show up for the people around you. If you're looking for an affordable and convenient way to try therapy, you should consider BetterHelp. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge for whatever reason. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com distraction today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash distraction. And we're back talking World Series with Emma Bachelieri. So, again, I'm full disclosure, we recorded this prior to Game 7 between the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. So, if 
someone hit like a dove with a pitch uh, during that game or something <laughs> amazing like that. We will not be able to speak of it. However, we can talk about the Phillies and the Diamondbacks. Let's start uh, with the Phillies, Emma, who I'm rooting for, maybe against my best interest, but they are the cleavage-bearing sweethearts of baseball, and they could be going back to the World Series for the second year in a row, unlike the Astros. And uh, as Roth notes, they were uh, they seem to be buoyed by homers and vibes, not necessarily in that order. What is it about this team? Are they truly magic, Emma, or am I just like ascribing a narrative to them that they don't necessarily deserve? I mean, like this was built to be a very good team. Like that, those homers are no accident. This is a very good lineup that was constructed with power in mind. It can be a pretty great pitching staff when it's at its best. You know, they did some work to shore up the bullpen, which was last year's biggest struggle spot. But yeah, it does feel kind of magic, I think, just because it, this sounds cheesy, but I think it's something that like you pick up in every Kelsey McKinney blog post about this team. Like, there is just sense of, such a sense of fun and love, which sounds silly, but it's true that like you just watch them and they're so clearly happy to be playing together to be part of this team like the I, the the vibes truly are off the charts um you have a very vibey backup catcher in Garrett Stubbs who maintains the celebration playlist and hasn't gotten a, a, like any playoff playing time at all and yet is like clearly responsible for crafting so much of the like spirit of this team in terms of music and celebrations and you know dugout demeanor like that's pretty essential, I think, if the you're talking about The Jack Haley of baseball. Yeah. Yeah, you got to have... And it has to be the backup catcher, I think, is important. Like, it, it can be like a utility infielder, but it's really better if it's the backup catcher. And especially a backup catcher like this who never gets to play because he's behind, you know, arguably the best catcher in the game yeah. in JT Real Mito. So that's perfect. You know, it. you have pretty much the same team that did this last year intact. Um you have a chance for Reese Hoskins, a hero last year, to come back and make like a World Series hero appearance, which is a lot of fun. It's just really like, yes, this is a legitimately very good team. And it, it doesn't really have last year's quite like team of destiny model of like you had to replace the manager midseason and like you genuinely weren't built to be this good and you somehow like managed to come out the other side. Like this year, it's not quite so much of that. Um, but yeah, like the. The homers and vibes is not a bad way to describe it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if there's like a better way to build a team, I don't necessarily know what it is. I mean, like the this is the thing I've been like trying to figure out whether this is a thing I could write about or if it's worth doing. But I feel like the you can't say that it's a causal thing, but the teams that were elite during the regular season and went out during the playoffs the Astros and the Braves both did it in a very whiny way. And I think if you were to just at, have asked me at the start of the postseason which two teams I thought would be in the World Series, I thought it would be them. And the <laughs> the Phillies just seem unbothered. And again, it's easy. I mean, the Rangers kind of have some of this too. It's easy when you're winning games. Like, it's easier when you're winning games anyway. But the... The vibe maintenance from one year to the next, I didn't know that it was all the work of, like, their... Uh, undersized backup catcher who gets 75 plate appearances per year, but that makes it that much better. It Like, against all of my better judgment, I think my feelings on Philadelphia sports fans and Philadelphia sports in general are a matter of public record. I will not go over it here. Uh, 
I think they're neat. I've never felt that way about a Phillies team before. So not even I, the Kruk ones. The Kruk ones were different because they. I guess I did think that those were. That was okay. a cool fucking team. But they were like very dirtbaggy. This team has. I kind know. Of a, I like and maybe that it's part. just the fact that, like, as Emma said, like we're all sort of getting it through the lens of Kelsey McKinney's feelings about the team. So they just seem like kind of sunny sided himbos to me. Whereas I remember the the John Kruk team. It was like a bunch of mullets. Lenny Dykstra, everybody was just covered in tobacco juice all the yeah, time. Yeah, back when men were men, baby. Can That's I tell a brief John Crook story from when I was a child? Please, Please. do so that right now. When I was in like middle school, I used to go to Mets games. I would ask my dad to take me early so I could go get autographs during batting practice. And I would, you know, sometimes I did better than others. I got like a young Craig Biggio's autograph. He wasn't very nice about it. I got some other, Ken Caminiti was super nice to me. Uh, got a lot of problems in his life, but very kind to children. Crook was there with the Phillies at a game I was at and fans were trying to get him to sign autographs. And he was like trying to reason with a bunch of early 90s Mets fans and being like, why would I sign an autograph for you? You're going to call me an asshole in 15 minutes. And one of the guys was like, no, I'm not. He's like, you definitely are. Like, I played here yesterday. That's all you guys do. Like, we need to be like, we have to understand what our relationship is. And they were like, but I want you to sign my bowl. Like, John Crook was very clearly the more reasonable and intelligent person in that conversation. Which is maybe, I wouldn't say it's the most embarrassed I felt as a Mets fan. That is an incredibly high bar. But I remember seeing, like, this guy's different. Like, he is, not only is he engaging, like, I think he's got this, like, Long Island knob completely on his heels, argumentatively. I was very impressed. Wow, he did defeat him with logic. He used the power of facts and logic, yes. (laughs) I think you guys might be, I mean, Roth sort of alluded to it, but I think you guys might be talking around the fact that it's not really the team with the vibes. It's the fact that they have the best crowd left in the playoffs. Like it's a great fucking crowd. A little bit of that, but the team's got great vibes. It is a great crowd. It's it's yeah. A, I like a little I like column them. A, little uh, column B, and mm-hmm. an equally great crowd. The Arizona Diamondbacks. We all know how great their fans. The famous are. the Snakeheads. We love we love them and we love their energy. One of the most famously loyal fan bases in all Mm. of baseball. Roth, I think you have some questions for Emma about these Diamondbacks. I guess I have one big question about the Diamondbacks. I will not to back to me this too much. Every year the baseball prospectus annual people give me an essay assignment. They generally they've admitted this to me that they try to pick a team that is bad and is going to make me upset to see just because that's funny to them. (laughs) <laughs> that I then write something where I get mad. They gave me the Diamondbacks in, so after they lost 110 games in 2021. And at my argument in that essay was that they were a 110 loss team that year, but that they weren't actually that bad, that there was no reason to like completely pull the ripcord, go into the toilet for five years and see what happens. They, But they were very much a 110 loss team in 2021. They were a lousy team last year, under 500. Like, what the hell is happening here? Do you have any explanation for this? I mean, there are a few things you can say. A big one is, you know, Corbin Carroll, who was yes. expected to be a great young player and instead has been just like incredible lights out, rookie of the year material, promoting him from, you know, opening day. That made a big difference. The top of this rotation is really good. Merrill Kelly and Zach Allen. And I think, you know, it wasn't quite as easy to see Zach Allen becoming this kind of pitcher a few years ago, but it really has been, I think, a, a weird mix of like, they did some smart things to p- put themselves in a position to get better. Certainly, I don't think even they would have said they put themselves in a position to plan for 
this. World Series? Um, yeah, no. Yeah. Wouldn't say that yeah. either. <laughs> so, yeah, like they are legitimately better. It, it, you know, it feels weird to bring up Corbin Carroll because he's kind of been MIA in the playoffs, despite as the incredible season he had. Fabulous hair, um, though. God respect yes. the hair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it really, I, as much as we just talked about the, the Phillies vibes, I think this seems like a very vibes-based, weird Team of Destiny thing going on here, too, where, you know, this wasn't what they expected. It wasn't what anyone else expected, I think. And, you know, they were supposed to be better. I think they were entering this year thinking of themselves in contention for one of those wild card spots. Uh, but I, I don't think they were thinking of this. Yeah, it's weird because it's like, it's one thing you look at the Rangers as a team that lost 100 games in 2021 too. It's like, this is a totally different roster. The Rangers, they have like four or five guys held over. This is like kind of the same Diamondbacks team, give or take a couple of young players that broke through, you know, that they, and you know, whatever, Paul Seawald is closing and stuff, but it feels sort of cosmetic. I don't know that this is necessarily proof that, um, any team, if they make a few smart competitive decisions and try, could have this happen to them. But it also sort of feels like, you know, this is as good an argument for, like, try to make the playoffs as I could imagine. Yeah, it is. Like, come in on one of those last wildcard spots and you could suddenly get, you know, game-winning home runs from Alec Thomas, of all right, people, and right. then you'll be in the World Series. Yep. Simple as that. Why doesn't everybody just do that? <laughs> Are they... um this is a very ignorant question, but are they similar in some ways to the Marlins team that won World Series, where this team is 21st in payroll overall? Is this sort of team that will make a run, but then will just get dismantled when everybody wants uh, a raise and all that shit? Not quite. You know, I think, like, there are certainly pieces that they probably won't retain here, but, like, the, the there's a young core here that is presumably around for a while it's certainly not like i think with you know the marlins in both 97 and 2003 it was like you built up really big to immediately tear down and go from top of the world to like absolute garbage the next year that's not going to happen here i think it's going to be hard to replicate this run just because it feels so crazy but um i think like there will certainly be changes but they weren't built up high enough to then be completely torn down if that makes sense yeah I think there's room, the ways that they could improve too. It's like, there's still some young players coming, but it is, uh, 21st in payroll is like, even by Diamondback standards, they've traditionally been like closer to the middle than the bottom half of the middle. Yeah. So I feel like a little bit, I mean, whatever, who knows? I I think there is that definitely, you know, the point that you made, it's not replicable. And I think to a certain extent, they're in the playoffs because the Mets and the Padres underperform so much. But they're not the sort of team that's going to go after Otani in the offseason to complete, like, the roster or anything like that, right? No, I think, like, they're kind of, I think with what Roth was just saying about being middle of the pack, like, I think they will build to this group with, like, smart, practical free agents who add around the margins. Um, But they're not splashing out like that, no. Oh, and then they'll move to Vegas right afterward. It'd be great. Oh, it's terrific. That's the that's the end game for every team. Eventually, every owner wants to play there. Ken Kendrick actually seems like a guy that really like. He seems like a Phoenix guy, and I don't mean that as like a compliment. I want to be clear. He just kind of has just a, a guy that seems like he's always being driven around someplace, has a huge collection of baseball memorabilia. That's Scottsdale energy to me. A real sense of where he is. Yeah, I feel yep. like that is a key to his identity. <laughs> Um, I do have a question for you guys on the subject of fan bases and vibes that fans are bringing to the stadiums here. 
Diamondbacks have a pool in their outfield. They do. They yes. do. And so sanitary, I'm sure. You're on the track of the question I'm about to ask. Okay. In game four of this NLCS, which the Diamondbacks came from behind to win, when they had the game-tying hit in the eighth inning, they showed some fans fully clothed who clearly did not plan on jumping in the pool, jumping in the pool. If you were in that situation and you have jumped in the pool in the eighth inning of a game, do you then decide to just hang in the pool for the next 20 minutes? Because like, what is the point of getting out of the pool and having to stand there in your soaking wet, you know, Cattell Marte jersey for, you know, another half hour. Like, that feels weird and awkward. But it also feels weird and awkward to just hang in the pool fully clothed for another inning. I honestly can't tell which is worse. And I've been thinking about it since they showed those fans, you know, like five days ago doing this. That is, what a wonderful question. Because that is really like, this is what separates the people on this podcast from the people that jump in the pool when something good happens at a baseball game. (laughs) Is that we're sort of like, well, I got my socks on and they're going to be all wet. We're not wrong to worry about our socks. It's just, yeah, this is the sort of thing that you would think about afterwards. I would like to believe that I'd just stay in the pool, you know, but I don't know. Like, you're right about these things take a long time. Like if some team, if they're making like a bullpen move for like situational purposes and I've been in the pool for 25 minutes and I'm like, I think you can just let them face a lefty here. Like, I don't, it's not really like, I'm not that bothered by it. Drew, do you have any thoughts on this? In this case, imagine that you're wearing, you know, the full uh, Drew regalia, not like the rash guard beach. Well, uh, my thought is that if if you're jumping in to the the Diamondbacks pool and you're fully clothed, you ain't sober, right? So no, probably not. You're not gonna give yeah. half a fuck if you're standing in there for another twenty minutes. What difference does it make? Time flies when you're shit faced. So, and also, I think I would stay anyway because, like. I don't like st- I don't like wearing wet clothes. Like you know, if you ever put on something from the dryer and it's not quite dry yet, so it's like, eh, yeah, like you like kind of want to make it work. Huh? Yeah, wet yeah. socks. That's the worst. Can't do it. Oh yeah. So so I would I would stay in the pool, Emma. I want to ask you. <laughs> Can I, I like the idea. The one thing I will say about this: this is a reason not to have it at City Field or any place that is reachable by mass transit. Which I'm assuming that anybody going to the Diamondbacks game is getting in a car and going home. The idea of getting on the seven train and it's running (laughs) local and your clothes are entirely wet and you're like, great fucking Rawson. I can't wait to get the 38th Fisk. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back. Also, our producer Eric Silver noted that we're in the pitch clock era. So, you know, that, that end game, probably more towards 15 minutes and 20 minutes. You know what I mean? Like these games were nice and tight. Thank you, Rob Manfred. Thanks for making it easier to have wet socks at a baseball game. I've, I've liked the pitch <laughs> clock. I do wish I do wish they would show it all the time because they, you know, you show the shot clock in the NBA and you show the play clock in football. So like, I figure it's a matter of time until they start showing the pitch clock because otherwise I'm just hearing the announcers talk about it. Like, well, the, the pitch clock's winding down. Like, show me. You don't have to fucking say it. Like, it's easier that way. I feel like I barely thought about the pitch clock down the end of the season, which I guess is like either that, proof of my goldfish brain or of like the final demonstration that the rule has actually worked. I think, I think it's more the latter, isn't it, Emma? Yeah, I think so. And it, there was some conversation earlier this year of like, oh, well, they have to make adjustments in the, in the playoffs. Yeah. Are we going to have a situation where there's going to be some big, you know, momentous plate appearance and instead it's going to end on a pitch clock violation and people are going to go crazy. But I, I mean, I think the biggest thing here is that players were already you know, working with the clock well enough that there was time to spare. I think the average uh, time that a pitcher threw this year was with like eight seconds remaining on the clock. So it's like there still was time to let the game expand and breathe a little bit more 
in the playoffs without it, you know, running into problems. I do think we've felt like more of players kind of soaking in those moments, taking longer to decide the pitch, you know, working with the catcher. Um, but it doesn't feel like anything big. Like, I don't think it really has an effect on the viewing experience at all, other than the fact that it's really nice to see so many of these games end in under three hours. Yeah. So, yeah. Yep. It makes you wonder how we ever, as a society, were okay with just, like, random Sunday night baseball games between the Mets and the Red Sox taking, like, four hours and 25 minutes. Well, I, I'm not sure we were, judging by the ratings. Yeah, I mean, but I wasn't, <laughs> but, I mean, they were, just happened. Uh, has it been a good postseason, Emma? Like, I feel like it's been... Like we had a game, we just had a game seven in in the ALCS, but it was it was a laugher. It was eleven to four. It was it was an ass kicking. Has there been enough signature moments in these playoffs? Because I've watched a lot of the baseball and have enjoyed it. I I just said the baseball like exactly <laughs> to my age. Marge Simpson saying, "Watch out for the shack attack." It's not quite that, Drew. Yeah, right. but I I'm wondering like there haven't been any like 15 inning barn burners or because they don't have the ghost runner in the playoffs and stuff like that. Has it been a good postseason? Uh, in your mind I would say it's been a fine postseason so far I agree there haven't been a ton of you know insane moments obviously the Garcia Grand Slam is a big one yeah other than yeah um the Alec Thomas home run yeah uh although the fact that all the stars are out right from Alec (laughs) Thomas to Adolis Garcia you can only get it on but yeah go ahead yeah, that was like as I was saying the names, I was like, uh, not really making my <laughs> like, case. Is there here. anyone cool in here? <laughs> just common um, cards. It really is. I think like the most iconic moment is probably going back to that Atlanta Philly series where you had uh, the relay play at the end to win it for Atlanta that gave us Attaboy Harper and yeah. then you know some of the worst discourse imaginable about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whether what a reporter can do in a clubhouse. Um, the sanctuary. Yeah, clearly. Uh, that play, I think, is still probably the single best play we've seen of, of October, which is not great that it's, you know, a DS game-winning play for a team that then lost. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's been a bad postseason. I think it's just, you know, hopefully it gets better. We have more excitement with the World Series. But it, I think there have been enough moments uh, that have been interesting enough to recount here that uh, it, it hasn't been bad. Yeah. We did finally get some come from behind stuff uh, recently, but that was a point that people had made early was that like basically the first team that took the lead in every game won it for like two weeks. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily mind it because it was like brisk and it was still kind of tense. You never knew who was going to come back. And then also, like, as I've demonstrated many times, I will keep drinking that garbage regardless. Like, but. I do feel like it's starting to sort of like get in gear a little bit. Like there was a lot of fun shit in the Astros Rangers series, like more in that series than there was in like the entirety of the AL side of the postseason prior to that. So like, yeah, I'll take it, I guess. This is twins erasure and I won't have it. Sure. The twins were, it was, so it was fun. I bought a jersey. Stuff. I'll have you, you did. Know. And I, I expensed it to defector, but I bought a jersey. Who? I, what player? Oh, it was Kirby Denard Puckett. Span. No. It was Kirby Puckett. I couldn't get the old, we were at the shop in Manhattan, and I couldn't get the old uh, 1991 Twins jersey, like the pinstripes and all that stuff. Like, it's they haven't updated one, but it's not the same. I need whatever. So I got a, a Kirby one, and then, but with like the new, like the dark blue or whatever. I love it. It's great. One of my big regrets that I did not get. I was at a for a friend's wedding in at a summer camp in like outer Minneapolis. Uh, and we had to go to like a Target or something to get 
you know, like supplies is like a nice way of saying it. I think the short answer was that maybe they also sold booze or something. I don't know what we were doing there. They had um, like the powder blue twins jerseys. They had them for uh, Denard Span and I think maybe possibly Corey Kosky. And I didn't buy either of them. And that's a huge miss on my part. I yeah. still feel like I blew it. Yeah, that's on you, man. Love Denard Span. Great grid guy. I know we're not doing the guy remembering segment, but if I'm... We're going to talk about the twins. I'm going to remember a damn twin. We are we are allowed to remember guys. Yes. Well, then let's uh, let's move on from baseball, Emma, and let's open up the fun bag. Time to open the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. This one's from Lewis, Emma. Uh, it's a it's a it's not that long. You you can hear it. Uh, Lewis writes in Emma. I am a collector, and I often think about the number of times an item I've collected has been sold prior to my purchasing it. For example, a vintage sweatshirt I recently bought. The store that originally offered it in the 1980s sold it to someone who, many years later, likely donated it to a thrift store. The thrift store then sold it to a vintage reseller, reseller, and the reseller sold it to me. I'm likely to sell it to someone else someday. And this led me to wonder what items are sold the most in their lifespans. My guess is that foodstuffs are sold the fewest times and cars the most. Emma, what what mercantile product passes through the most hands in its lifespan? Ooh, that is such a good question. I think, I don't know. I agree that on the average, it's hard to pick a clothing related one because so much like fast fashion is sold once. But thinking of like, there are mm. some really hardy sweaters out there that have been sold and thrifted and re-thrifted many times. Yeah. Books also. So I feel like the book almost never falls apart. And so, yeah, I agree that the average probably is just once, but they can be sold a lot. Yeah. So I think clothing is, it, it's my answer, although you do make a good point about the fact that I think, not to sound 1,000 years old here, I don't think they make them like they used to. I think there's a lot of things. <laughs> they, don't. Like, they don't. It's true. Yeah. I mean, even down to like the dumb fucking shirts that I buy at Goodwill and stuff. Like if I'm buying like a J. Crew shirt for $7 like this year and it's from a few years ago, it's worse than the ones that I was buying a few years ago that were for, from a few years before that. You know, and I think especially, you know, the 80s stuff where it really was built to last in a lot of ways, you still see those cycling through. And at this point, you know, all the like basically it seems like young people want to dress in like a cool version of the way that I dressed in middle school now. Like there's a lot of just like wide ass jeans and big puffy champion sweatshirts with very gathered bottoms of the sleeves and stuff like that. But they're the same sweatshirts. My daughter wanted to buy JNCOs at a thrift store. I was wow. like, are you, I was like, you know how uncool those are? And she's like, no, they're not. And so I'm she, like, she found a pair of Jenkos at a thrift store. No, she wants to find okay. them. Like she has, that's hard. She's competing against everyone else her age. They all want that. Now. They all want to dress like Kevin Smith. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I can't, I can't figure that out. Books is a good answer too, though. Cause that's like, even if they're not sold, there's like my wife's whole family. It's like, you know, there's her mom was the eldest of a million kids. And they like all the aunts are just constantly lending books back and forth to each other. Mm. So like any one paperback that is sold to anyone in their family is going to get read by like nine different people with similar facial features. Yes, but will it be sold to those people? No, no, it will not. But then you have to go through like, oh, trading cards, comic books. What's uh, your answer on this, Drew? Do you have one? Uh, oh, shit. I, I did have one. Oh, I was going to say, I say, do do apartments count? They probably don't account. Oh, yeah. Don't. That's a good one. Especially, yeah, it's like basically until the building falls down, they're just going to find some way to 
rent it out to somebody else. Mike writes in, Emma, who's the Bill Walton of baseball? You know, reasonably good at color commentary, but also a little off the wall and goofy. Is there is there a Bill Walton of baseball, Emma? You can go local for it, too. Does Hawk Harrelson count? Anybody counts. If you have an answer, that counts. <laughs> Hawk's a pretty good answer I- in the sense that he's like, got as many haters as he does people that defend him. Right. And they're always interesting to listen to, if not good. <laughs> right. Uh, Frequently um, incorrect, but never boring, which is basically what we're talking about here, I think. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who else. And that might be my answer. I'm trying to give a quick spin around the majors in my head right now. Because I'm know trying a lot to think about of- the different broadcast teams. I don't really know that much about like who calls games for like the Reds. I don't See, know if we is. had Dan McQuaid, he would know all yes, of them. He would we definitely would, know but... the Phillies one. But, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, I can only think of guys who are either retired or dead. So I'm thinking of like Phil Rizzuto, Harry Carey, you know, now Cubs win. Like I'm yep. thinking of that, but that's not, that's not quite right. Yeah, the, the ex-ball players that have stepped into that role are less like loopy at this point, And they're more, I mean, at the national level, we don't need to talk about John Smoltz and over that but there's a lot of like just kind of grumpuses in that chair whereas i think you know as growing up listening to the mets with like ralph kiner that was legitimately just a distractible old guy like with decently good vibes who was doing the job because he liked it there isn't i think that is a little bit harder to find harrelson is a good answer in the sense that because he can also be a bit of a sourpuss about like the kids today and stuff like that. Yeah. But he's also just gonna like free associate if he's bored, which is the Bill Walton difference, really. Oh, you want you want a reach? Here's a reach for you. We were talking, you and I, Roth, we were talking about I think with Kelsey too, we were talking about how there's been sort of a death of unique batting stances in Major mm-hmm. League Baseball. It's more mm-hmm. like Gary Sheffields or Jeff Bagwell looking like he's gonna fucking grunt out uh a loaf like while he's, while he's about to bat. <laughs> and it's all because of how, well, I assume it's because of how youth baseball players are refined and taught and coached and all that stuff. So they're coached out of having anything that's too uh, eccentric or unwieldy because they don't, it's just not proper technique. So maybe, maybe it's the same deal with broadcasters where if you're a fucking weird old toothy stoner like Bill Walton and you're going to broadcast school, they're going to be like, you do not sound anywhere near enough like Kirk Herbstreet and we're going to fix that right now. That actually sounds convincing enough to me. Ah, yeah. ah wasn't a reach. I think. Fantastic. Good job. I think the thing that, I don't Emma, if you have something you wanted to add to it, but I think the way that that, there's an arc that ex-ball players sort of describe, football-wise too, I think, where when they start out, the first year or two that a recently retired person is doing color commentary on a baseball game is when you're getting the good shit. And then at that point, they're either coached to, you know, build a catchphrase and hit it or to sort of do whatever it is that like A-Rod's doing where he like pretends that he really likes bunting or whatever. And you're like, I know that's not true, man. Like you've never given a shit about that. But I do think there's like that, that little bit at the beginning where they're still close enough to the game that they know what they're talking about. And they're also not like mad that they have to do it yet. Where we're in a good like I've, I haven't minded like Wainwright and stuff like that, for instance. He's um, great. I, I really like good. him. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I'm learning something from this asshole. That never happens, or that never used to happen. That happens actually more now with football too. Like fo- football color guys, like I learn shit if like 
Even like Romo, Romo sort of pulled it back from his just like, oh, this game's pretty crazy, Jim. Like he yep. actually is like, <laughs> he's back to diagramming stuff. I do like, I they do show me things that I would not have seen otherwise. And that's yeah. kind of nice. Do you have a favorite, Emma? Is there somebody that you like, and not that you think is the most like Bill Walton, but someone you think is actually real good? I think my favorite team might be Benetti and Stone on the White Sox. Yeah, they're great. Benetti's amazing. Yeah. Um, which I think, yeah, Benetti is just so good in whatever role or sport you put him in. Um, I think that might be my single favorite team. Uh, Padres broadcast is also really good. Who's that? Don Orsillo and... Yeah, Orsillo. Um, he's a champ. Or why not, yeah. put, why not put Bill Walton in a major league booth? You know, take it deep, big man. You know, I think and giving him the space to like just... That's the thing that's good about baseball games, even with the pitch clock, because Bill Walton will just do it. If you put him on like a random Pac-12, like late night game, he'll be like, Oregon, a beautiful state full of trees, many of them my personal friends. And he's like doing that (laughs) while basketball is happening. He just doesn't care, which I think in a baseball game where nothing is actually happening, he could really uh, touch the infinite. I would like that. I would like that. Emma Bachelier, yeah. you were a great guest, and I hope you have a great World Series. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Google is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. You can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com, or you can call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-PANERA-0-EMMA. You can read at Sports Illustrated. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while you're here, Emma? Nope, you covered it. She's the best there is. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.